Mamaji, Yogananda talked about having former incarnations uh, as a warrior, William the Conqueror, for example. And I wondered how could uh, a spiritual master take an incarnation like that? Well, you know, in the Bhagavad Gita, India's foremost scripture, best, most popular scripture, it says that in chapter 4, it says, from time to time, when virtue declines and vice is in the ascendant, I myself take birth in human form as an avatar to punish vice and to help virtue to flourish. At such times, an avatar, and that doesn't mean just Krishna, it means any liberated saint who with great compassion comes back to this world, if he comes completely liberated from all karma, he is an avatar. And so Jesus Christ was an avatar. Buddha was an avatar. Yogananda was an avatar. And there have been quite a few others. Ramakrishna was an avatar. But an avatar's role is a very different one from that of a saint who is trying by humility and kindness and everything to achieve perfection. He is already perfect, and it is sometimes his job to punish evil. And therefore, Jesus also drove the money changers out of the temple. People think of Jesus as sweet and gentle and mild. He could be pretty fierce when the Pharisees were calling him the son of the, uh, uh, whatever they were calling him, he was saying, and you are the sons of your father, the devil. And he was powerful. But uh, that's why they hated him. But he had a specific role to complete, and he completed it. So Yogananda came. He said to us, he was Arjuna, who was in fact the person with Krishna, the protagonist of the Bhagavad Gita. And it was to Krishna, to Arjuna, that Krishna said those words. So he came back as, Henry, as William the Conqueror, I believe he was Ferdinand III in Spain, who drove help to drive the Moors out of Spain. He didn't finish the job, but he did a great deal that way. His body too, by the way, like William the Conqueror's, both of their bodies have remained incorrupt. I have visited the tomb of Ferdinand III, and it's still there in Sevilla. And William the Conqueror's body was exhumed some um, three or five centuries after his death and found to be incorrupt. So um, he comes into this world with a specific mission to punish evildoers. That means to get them out of the position where they can continue to do evil. He doesn't try to punish the evildoers. He, he punishes evil. They are souls. He wants to help them too. But he does not allow them to continue in a position where they can continue to hurt other people. So this is the role of an avatar. So in, that, in the broader sense, that's the role of an avatar. In the specific, in the case of William the Conqueror, what was he there to create? Well, he came at a time when Christianity was being pretty well fractured. The northern countries, the um, Norwegians and the Vikings and so on, they were not Christian at all. 
and Christianity was very much fractured. He, it was time, at that time, to bring it back to Rome. He needed to bring that unity there. England was really not under the Anglo-Saxon so much as the Vikings. The Vikings, uh, there were a, a good half of the country was Viking. And he came, England was a country apart from Europe. Be much more difficult to do it in Europe. But England being separate, he could organize it. And his job was to bring England under the church and bring it into a harmonious whole. And to do that, he had to sometimes be very fierce. When people betrayed him, he had to punish them. He very rarely, only once, I think, resorted to the death penalty for the case for, for betrayal. But he had to, as I said, be fierce. Yet his closest friends were all saints. He was a very noble man, forgiving always ready to help people. He was a strong but very loving person. Swamiji, what did he do as far as the English language is concerned? What did he do? <laughs> well, I remember Yogananda's chief editor, Taramata, Laurie Pratt. She said even when he was William, he never mastered the English language. Well, the English language didn't exist then. But when the Normans came in, it, they brought in the influence of French too. And English, as we know it today, has a lot of French elements in it also. It's not that William was a scholar. He spoke French, but his son Henry. In fact, I think I was Henry myself. And his son Henry helped to. He was born in the purple, you might say or they said in those days, because he was born in England and therefore was considered by the English a more English king. Actually, he too spoke French mostly at that time, but he could talk a little of the local dialect as it was. So did William bring in the rule of law? William brought in the rule of law. William helped to organize England. It was a lawless country at that time, with the earls all fighting each other, and it was there was no peace. He finally, with great strictness, brought it under a single rule. He was a bit of a con conservationist also, wasn't he? Well, that's not something people knew at that time. They thought that he was being unreasonable. He set aside a large part of the kingdom as forest land, for hunting, but I don't think he had much time to hunt. It was really, I, I, can, I see it now as being very forward-looking to see that there is, there is a need in a country as it grows for a certain part of the country to be set aside as forest land so that you have greenery. Greece cut down all its trees and it has no rain now. And uh, it was because of short-sightedness. Can you tell us a little bit about Henry and what his role was? Well, Henry was the third son of William the Conqueror. William's first son was a, was a rebel. Even while William was lying on his deathbed, Robert Curthose, his oldest son, who was the Duke of Normandy, was 
staging a rebellion against him. William Rufus, whom I met him in this lifetime, in this lifetime Robert Curthose was Dhirananda, who betrayed Yogananda also and nearly destroyed his work. Robert Curto, I mean, uh, William um, Rufus, this oldest, the oldest son of William, second oldest son of William, he made him the King of England. And he was, uh, uh, you might say, a diamond in the rough. I met him in New York. His name was Warren Vickerman. He was a rug merchant. He was still very much the same kind of person, actually very devoted to God, but he didn't seem like it because he was very rough-hewn. And anyway, Henry, Yogananda uh, would say, William, gave Henry silver. And Henry said, what am I going to do with the silver if I, if I, if I have no land to spend it on? And uh, William whispered to him on his deathbed, be at peace, you will have what both your brothers have now. And in fact, that's what happened in the end. William, um, had, uh, William Rufus was killed in a hunting accident. Henry became king of England. Ro Robert Curtos was a completely inept duke. And finally, Henry ended up taking over Normandy just to save Normandy. So Henry became ruler of England and Normandy. He was... He's been greatly misunderstood by history. Actually, he was a very good man, but he was impartial, calm. He didn't get excited. And so historians who were worldly take his lack of excitement as a sign of being very cold. He wasn't cold at all. There's a wonderful story about his life. Um, maybe I told this story once here. But anyway, he... Uh, he was very temperate. He had no patience with people who drank a lot. But sometimes he'd take a little glass of wine before going to bed to help him to sleep. And usually he didn't. So one night he asked for a glass of wine, and his steward came to him in fear and trembling because he had drunk it himself, and he admitted that he had drunk it. And instead of Henry getting angry, he said, Well, from now on, pour two glasses. They couldn't open up the cellars because they were locked for the night. They wouldn't be open until the morning. But he said, pour two glasses that way. If I want one, you can, you can have one, I'll have one. <laughs> but that's typical of Henry. And uh, I feel very, uh, very, I feel very close to that life. I can recognize things of myself in it. I can even, in a sense, remember things. When Hen when William... Rufus was killed, Henry had to go to Winchester to get the royal treasury, and he, he was confronted by somebody who said it belongs to the Duke of Normandy now, who was the oldest brother. And uh, it was a moment of a certain amount of excitement. Henry drew his sword and said, I insist on it. And I still remember when I read that, my heart beats a little faster. And there are other things that seem to me very real. Swamiji, uh, Henry had a priority to uh, reunite Normandy and England as one kingdom, but that didn't seem to have stayed for very long. It kept... No, it didn't. And I think that he understood that too. You have to do what you can for your lifetime, 
But in the end, everything you do, this is why you can't be sure that whatever work you do will last long. The only thing you can be sure of is that what you do with the spirit that you do it will be pleasing to God. Henry, above everything, was a devotee, and he tried to do everything to please God. I think in the end, he felt that he had pleased God. But he had to go through many, many betrayals, much suffering. One of his own natural daughters at Point Bank Grange like this suddenly whipped out a, a crossbow and shot him. And she missed. How she missed, I don't know. But it's hard to believe the kind of betrayals he had to go through. And yet, always he was forgiving. Always, as Warren Hollister, his biographer, said, he forgave to the point of folly. But that's my nature now, too. I just figure, well, it's between other people and God. I don't have to be responsible.